Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Recorded live. Thank you. 
setting. Right. We've got I'm broadcasting in all of the normal ways that we always broadcast every week, plus one more <laughs> over on uh Pile Talk, which is a chat room and instant messenger program that is very popular that a lot of people use. And so I'm experimenting and broadcasting over on Pile Talk at the same time today. So uh, please excuse me if I have to pause to uh, experiment and adjust the settings and just time to give one more possible way of people hearing the truth. Okay, so page 12 and it's Psalm 121. Thank you. 
and Judges is after Joshua, there in the early part of the Old Testament, Judges 21. And for the record, today's date in the Roman calendar, in the Roman Empire calendar that we are currently under, is August 13th. But as I say that, I'm realizing that throughout time, when the empires have changed and transferred to the next empire, that they always go to that calendar, that calendar of that empire. And so it would make sense, and I believe that in the height of Assad's empire, the Assyrian empire, which will replace the Roman empire, that they will go to the Assyrian calendar. In fact, Muslims uh, use their own calendar, just like I always proclaim the date in the Roman calendar plus God's calendar. The Muslims do the same thing, except for instead of using God's calendar, they use the Islamic calendar. And they keep up with what day it is in their calendar and the names of their months. And the Jews do the same thing. So how much more should God's people know about God's calendar and God's calendar that that includes the holy days, the feast days. And when we say holy days, that's very special. We, should ought, we ought to stop and think that, about that for a minute because we're not saying holidays because uh, holidays is the modern term for holy days. That's what the word, that's what the word holidays means. It means holy days. But by saying holla instead of holy, they are trading underfoot what is holy and making up their own form of holiness, which is not holy. Amen. But our days in the calendar of Jesus are truly holy. So we ought to think about that, how God's calendar, the Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, and so forth, are holy days. Amen. And how much more that we should treat them as holy and not like the world treats their holidays. Today's date in God's calendar is the 11th day of the fifth month. 11th day of the fifth month. We're a couple of months away from the fall holy days in the month of October. Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. Let's all be in prayer about what God would have us to do as individuals and as a church 
what will time be like two months from now? Should we be preparing to keep the feast at home or down the street at a public park or some campground or should we travel to God? Would would God want us to save our money back so we can do those things? Or is the situation at that time is that we won't be able to travel and that we need every penny that we can find to uh, for our last-minute supplies. I don't know. Let's be seeking as a body. Let's be seeking what God would have us to do and what time's going to be like at that time. I do know that time is extremely short and if we think for even a moment that the tribulation that the great tribulation is not going to start within the next year or two or less probably much less if we don't believe that we're fooling ourselves because every every sign every news report every situation in the world Everything points to the Great Tribulation starting extremely soon, this year, next year, extremely soon. Let us not deceive ourselves because of a hope of peace fairy tale, a wishing that things won't come to be so fast, so soon. Let us not deceive ourselves with such things. Let us accept reality as well as the need to move forward. Amen. Today, I'm going to be talking about how that wickedness or the wicked exalts themselves and refuses to submit. The wicked exalts self and refuses to submit. Recently, Jesus has been showing me and you that people hate him and that they think themselves as better, wiser, more fair, and more loving than God and more loving than his people. They think that gay marriage is love and there could be nothing farther from it. It's not love. It's lust. 
they exalt themselves above God, thinking that if they were God, they could do a better job. And that there would be only peace on the earth if they were God. No sickness, no death, no tragedy if they were God. But the fact is, as I explained last week, God did give the authority and dominion of the earth to mankind. And mankind has ruled this earth for over 6,000 years. And look at what a mess it is in. The reason there is death, sickness, and tragedy in this world is because of our rule, of our reign, of our actions. We have proved ourselves, mankind in general, the wicked, the lost, we have proved ourselves of not being wiser or more fair or better or more loving than God. We have proved ourselves in general as mankind as being unable to reign without God. Unable to reign in a righteous and good way without God. We have proven that we need God and His rulership and His reign. After man has had power and authority and dominion over the earth for 6,000 years, over 6,000 years. Jesus is going to come back and reign for a simple day. One day. In the time frame of the universe, God's time frame and God's thinking, since he is eternal and a thousand years is as one day to him. It'll be a thousand years to us, but to God it's such a short time frame, like a snap of a finger. And in that very short time frame of only a thousand years and a thousand and one hundred years, he's going to show us, look at your six six thousand years. Look at your 6,000 years and what the result was and the end result. And look at only 1,100 years and how much better it was or will be under the reign of Jesus Christ. We'll be able to see that comparison. Both the saint and the sinner we'll be able to see that comparison. And therefore, the saints will be able to make a wise and righteous judgment against the wicked, against the fallen angels and their railing accusations. And we will be, we will be able to truthfully say that I declare 
you guilty, you wicked one. And we will be kings and priests on this world. And we will judge the angels. And even though the angels and the wicked make all these railing accusations against us and against God, the verdict will be so easy. It won't be a hung jury. The verdict will be just. But the wicked do exalt themselves and refuse to submit to God. This is the same thing their father Satan did. The children of the wicked follow after the vanity, the pride, and the wickedness of their father, the devil. They don't want to be told what to believe. They don't want to be told what is sin. They would rather choose for themselves what is right and what is wrong. And that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Every person, not just Eve and Adam, but every person has taken of that fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And every person sometime in their life has said to themselves, without, perhaps without knowing it, that they would choose for themselves. Instead of believing God and taking God at his word that we would die if we eat of that fruit and choose for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, if we choose for ourselves that we are wiser than God and we would choose for ourselves whether we should do this or not do that, then we do suffer damnation. That tree of knowledge of good and evil is still alive today and people are picking up that fruit every day rather than believing God and submitting to his rules, his commandments. Do this and don't do this. People refuse to submit to him. They don't want to hear that homosexuality is a sin or that abortion is sin or that witchcraft is a sin, they're choosing for themselves what is a sin. And therefore, they make themselves out to be God. The satanic monto is literally, if you look in Satanist books and the satanic Bible, their number one law in the satanic Bible is, do what thou will, unquote. Do what thou will. Do what you want. My life, I live it the way I want. So how many people on this earth is following the number one commandment, the number one law of the satanic Bible without knowing it, without realizing it? How many people are quoting the satanic Bible without knowing it? 
I do what I want. They are in rebellion against God and exalt themselves as God. They are against God and against righteousness, against holiness, against what is right and true, and they are against life itself. They are against light, and they love darkness and wickedness. Therefore, they choose to clothe themselves in darkness every day. Even their wardrobe show who they are and who they belong to. In Judges 21, verse 25, Judges 21, verse 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And even though we have presidents and kings on the earth today, People are doing what is right in their own eyes rather than what's right in the eyes of God. Let's turn to the book of Proverbs, chapter 21. Proverbs 21, verse 1. Verse 1 through 4, Proverbs 21, verse 1 says, The king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of G. He turns it wherever he wishes. Ever a man's way is right in his own eyes, but G weighs the hearts. To do righteousness and justice is desired by G more than sacrifice. To do righteousness, that's what he desires for all mankind to do. He don't want wickedness. He don't want death and destruction. His desire of G, even more than sacrifice, even more than prayer, even more than fasting, even more than reading the Bible, is for us to be righteous. Be righteous. A lot of people think that only because they go to church once a week on the Sabbath or on Sunday or on Wednesday, that as long as they go to church once a week and as long as they don't murder anybody, as long as they don't steal, that they're going to go to heaven. Even if they are homosexual or a witch or whatever, even if they have a cuss word in every sentence that they pronounce, yep, they're still going to go to heaven, they think. But to do righteousness and justice. Justice is rendering Right judgment, right verdict. 
And we must be judging every day. The number one most twisted Bible verse in the whole Bible is do not judge. But they don't read the next sentence and the next sentence and the next sentence that explains that it's really talking about don't judge hypocritically. The Bible says that we should judge, that we should make righteous judgments, and that we are not to associate with so-called brothers and sisters that say they're saved, but they are alcoholics, and this and that and this and that. That is what the Bible tells us. We have to be careful who we associate with. We need to make righteous judgment. And we need to help the orphans and the widows and the poor and the needy. But that don't mean giving a handout to people who are spending 200, 300, 400 a month on cigarettes and another 200 a month on plot every month and collecting food stamps and all of this because they're wasting all the money on the plot and the cigarettes. And then another $100 a month on the beer. Should we give a handout to those people? Absolutely not. You might as well just burn it. You might as well just burn your money because that's what you're doing. But to help those people who truly need the help, who don't have the money, to help the people who are trying to help themselves. This is what the Lord desires even more than sacrifice, even more than fasting. And in verse 4 it says, Halty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked is sin. And so, we know that Eve looked at the fruit thought it was good to her eyes, and she made a wrong judgment. It looked good to her eyes, but it wasn't good. And so, verse 2, every man's way is right in his own eyes. And a proud heart, the Lord G weighs the hearts. God knows the trueness of the hearts. That word ways is to same thing as you take a rock into a place where they know about rocks and determines the value of that rock. It is that type of weight. It's much more than just saying it's five ounces. It is saying that it's gold or it's black as coal. It's determining the worth. It is determining the value. It is seeing whether it's a good heart or a bad heart. It is that type of weighing the heart. Look at chapter 14, Proverbs 14. Verse 12. 
Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way which seems of right to a man, but his end is the way of death. There's a way which seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death. Talking about the second death, the lake of fire. Let's turn to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, verse 1. And this chapter is talking about the pride of religious leaders, the deacons and the pastors of these churches. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say these things and do not do them. The scribes and Pharisees in that day and that time had some governmental authority. Back in that day and that time in the Middle East, and even today in the Middle East, government and church or government and religion is not separated. Even like it used to be in the United States, government and church was not separated, and the Constitution said nothing about separating church and state. It doesn't even say the words separation of church and state. The Constitution does not say separation between church and state. What it says is that the government shall make no law And whatever, I forget the next word, but talking about that they should not make no law determining religion or being a force in religion or limiting religion. And then they, people translate that to mean separation between church and state. But what it really should be translated as is that the government should not forbid our worship of God and our servitude and following him. And that is the way the founders, the people that wrote the Constitution, meant it to be, that we would have religious freedom. It wasn't meant to restrict religion. It was meant to preserve religion. And those same people that wrote that Constitution were church leaders. And the capital of the United States, the building, the capital building was once a church. And it was used both as a church and a government building. And all of those men proclaimed the name of Jesus Christ and the Ten Commandments 
and so forth and so forth. Now they were corrupted men. They were men of Babylon. And they were playing and dabbling with Freemasonry. But they did at least recognize and understand that government and church, or God more accurately, government and God, should never be separated. They knew that, and they understood that. They prayed before every meeting, every meeting, every session of Congress. They prayed. So, how can we say they believed in separation of church and state? I'll say this because the scribes and the Pharisees were religious leaders, but they also had governmental power. And we know that the book of Romans and the book of Peter tells us to obey those in authority, the government. So here Moses is saying, these people have power and we should obey their rules and regulations as much as we're able to do as long as it doesn't go against God. And But don't do their wicked deeds. And verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. That is the reason that they were doing things. reason they were fasting, the reason they were praying in the street corners was to be seen by men. For they broadened their uh, prylactes. These are boxes uh, that contain the Ten Commandments, leather boxes that contain a parchment on which is written uh, the Ten Commandments and the law and so forth in these boxes that they would wear on their forehead or on their hands to help them to remember the law of God. And they would make these things uh, larger so that people could see that they were wearing them where you cannot overlook that it was tied to their hand and they would make them fancier and larger to be seen of men and they would lengthen the tassels of their garments and they loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogue and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men But see, that word rabbi comes from the word rab, R-A-B, which was a uh, word that meant God. Uh, God's name is G, and the Muslims claim that his name is Allah, but Allah is not God's name. And then the Muslims also claim that Allah is the Arabic word for 
God. That is just the word God translated. So the Muslims are hypocrites in what they say the word Allah means. In one breath, they say the word the word Allah is God's name, and then uh, then out of the next breath, they say that Allah is just the Arabic word for God. So which is it? Well, the truth is that the word for God, both in Arabic and for uh, Paleo-Hebrew, because the Arabic and the Assyrian borrowed the word for God from Paleo-Hebrew, was the word Rab, R-A-B. And, but it can be used in different ways, in different contexts, and it can be used as a word for God or Lord or Master. It doesn't have to be the supreme God. It's not a name. It's not a formal name. It is just a translation of the word God, Lord, or Master. And then they add the B-I on it to perhaps make it more so of uh, a Lord or a Master. And so Jesus says in verse 8, but do not be called rabbi but one is your teacher. But see, that's not a real good translation there. Neither King James nor New American gets it right or very well translated. It should say, for one is your master. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your master. Jesus was not teaching against having teachers because if he was, that would be going contradiction to other scriptures where it says that he has appointed teachers. If we get the right translation, it does not contradict itself. And you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. The one is your father who is in heaven. And it should say in verse 10, do not be called masters. God is not against leaders. He's not against pastors. He's not against teachers. But he's against men saying, I am your master. Or yes, master, or no master, as far as the way it is in context with the word rabbi, as if we are exalting ourselves as God over that person. So that, you've got to take these verses all together. You can't take uh, verse 7 by itself or verse 8 by itself or verse 9 by itself, so forth. You've got to take the whole context, that the whole context is men lifting themselves up over and above other people to exalt themselves in order to be holy, to look holy, to seem holy, to be like God. And they are using words that refer to God, that go back to a word that means God, and they are exalting themselves as God. Even in the chair of Moses, where Moses was proclaiming the true word of God, because God told him to say such and such, but now these scribes and Pharisees and Jewish leaders and religious leaders are putting themselves in the seat of Moses and saying, 
I have heard from God, and I declare the word of God, and I'm exalting myself. It's basically these men are exalting themselves to the status of God and as uh, prophets of God when they are not, and God has not called them. So verse 10 should say, do not be called masters, for one is your master, that is Christ. Verse 11, but the greatest among you should be your servant. The greatest among you should be your servant. The word minister means servant. So if a man is a pastor or apostle or prophet, or if a person really sits in the seat of Moses, he should be a servant. And Moses was a servant to the people as well as a prophet of God. Verse 12, whoever exalts himself shall be humbled and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. God is not against the use of titles and positions He's not against the use of authority. But he is against those that have exalted themselves to be uh, who they are not. Look at chapter 7, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, verse 21. This is a verse that I believe that every so-called Christian Everybody that thinks they're saved needs to read this verse right here. And whenever anybody says to you, I know Jesus, I'm saved, and you know they're not, you ought to show them this verse. Matthew 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, will enter. Many will say to me on that day, not just a couple, not just a few, but many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. King James says, you workers of iniquity. These are people that are famous because they're casting out demons. And these are tele-evangelists. known for their works and their miracles. They probably have large followings. 
and they actually do use the name of Jesus. They think they are saved. They are religious leaders. So people can say that they're saved all they want to. They can even cast out demons. And people say, well, that proves that you're a man of God. And yet, they never were saved. They don't know God. Miracles is not proof that they belong to God. Even Assad and the popes will work great miracles that doesn't prove that they are of God. But they practice lawlessness, iniquity, Christmas, Easter, Halloween, so forth, Sunday worship, and so forth. And notice here that they are also exalting themselves. They are pointing out their good works to the Lord. And they think that their good works has earned them salvation. But we've done this, and we've done that, and we've done this, and we've done that. Doesn't that prove that we are yours, that we are saved, that we can enter in? Nope. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. The people can think they're saved all they want to. Just because they say they're saved doesn't mean that it's true. Let's look at the book of Luke, Luke 18. And with one, only one slip of the Bible, I turn exactly, exactly to this scripture just then. Luke 18, verse 9. Of course, there are some true miracles of God that is truly of his power, and then there are the false miracles that are still true miracles of the power of the devil. So, see, the devil can allow demons to be cast out, but yet it be the working of the devil, the demons working with the devil in a play, a game, to make it appear that the people have been delivered and the people have been saved. But it's been planned out and the devils know to leave the people. Even though these people don't have the Holy Spirit, they're not saved, they have no power of God in them. But the devils, demons leave these people. The Catholic Church does it all the time. The Catholic Church is famous for exorcism, casting out demons. But Catholic priests are not saved. 
They don't have the Holy Ghost of Jesus Christ. They're wicked men. They are ministers of Satan. But yet they cast out demons all the time. Because the demons know that by manifesting some groaning and some growling and some screaming, that it will make people believe in these ministers of Satan even more. So they go along and they play the game to continue the deception and deepen the deception. They know what they're doing. In Luke 18, verse 9, it says, And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Now, well, that's the state of the laws today. People who think they are saved, but they don't live for God at all. They smoke pot, party it up, curse, get tattoos, dress in darkness, pierce themselves, this and that, this and that. Every which way you look, they are sinning at every turn. They're not saved at all. They don't even try to live for God. But they still claim that they know Jesus. And how dare you think that I'm not saved? Well, they trust in themselves that they're righteous. And they view others with contempt. They view anybody with contempt that would try to tell them that they need to get saved. They would view anybody in contempt that would judge them for their wickedness and their darkness. They view anybody in contempt that has righteous and true judgment. And some of these people do go to church, but they still live like the devil. In verse 10, it says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So he was declaring all the different ways that he had earned his salvation. Now, he thought he was praying to God, but it says that he was praying to himself, which shows that he was exalting himself as God. He was exalting himself. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven out of shame. Out of shame and out of a guilty conscience, he bowed his eyes to the dirt. He bowed his eyes to the ground but was beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He confessed his sins. 
He wasn't exalting himself. He wasn't saying, I've done this and I've done that. But he was confessing his sins in humility. Jesus said in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified, meaning left the church building justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We know that the other scripture says that we should be exalted in due time. Amen. Let's look at chapter 14. Luke 14, verse 7. Luke 14, verse 7. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests when he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table, saying to them, when you are... We're saying to them, Jesus is saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this other man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. But when you are invited, Go and recline at the last place, the back seat, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to your friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So you see how there's example after example after example. Different parables, different analogies, different, different stories and different examples of how it's important that in different situations, whatever the situation we may face in our daily lives, to try to humble ourselves, that doesn't mean that we should let people run over us. But it does mean that we should not be trying to exalt ourselves. It also does not mean that we should not accept our calling or the authority that God gives us. If he exalts us, if he comes to us and says, move up higher, then we should answer that call. Amen. Verse 12 says, and he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return 
and that will be your repay. That when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Notice that it doesn't say you'll be repaid at death or when you die or when you go to heaven. But when you are resurrected. So are you going to, this is a good verse to prove to people that you don't go to heaven when you die. You should mark it, write it down. Because do you get your repay, do you get your reward on the same day or the day after you die? Or 10 years or 20 years after you die? Nope. Only until the resurrection. Only when the resurrection comes. That is when payday is. Amen. That is when payday is. At the resurrection, the last trump, 1 Corinthians 15.52. 1 Corinthians 15.52 says the last trumpet. You can write that down and look that up later. <clears throat> now, this doesn't mean that we should never, ever invite our friends and families. But what it does mean is to not neglect and not forget the downcast and the underdog. If you do have a gathering of some sort, don't leave the the black sheep out, the people that are the black sheep for the family, the people that are alone, the widows and the poor and the needy, and the, maybe the single man or a woman, a single woman that may be struggling, that could be invited over for supper. Don't leave them out. Amen. And be careful not to receive a bribe. Be careful not to receive money in exchange for what you're trying to give somebody. Let's look at 1 Peter 5, the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. One Peter chapter five and verse five. One Peter five, verse five says, You younger men likewise, be subject in other words, submit yourselves to other people. Instead of trying to exalt yourself, instead of being rebellious, instead of having the attitude that you don't want nobody to tell you anything, you choose what you want to do, what you believe, and what you're going to do. Of course, we all got to study and examine and prove all things and determine what the truth is. I'm not saying you should have people tell you what you believe, but what I'm saying is some people don't want anybody telling them the truth, that we should believe the truth because they would rather choose for themselves what to believe based on their own false beliefs and carnal thinking. 
But rather, we should be subject to the Word of God. We should be subject to God himself, the government, and the religious governmental authorities, true pastors, not false prophets, not false pastors, but true elders, young men, likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in proper time or in due time. Look at chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But you once were not a people. My grandmother used to say to people, she would say, act like you are someone. Act like a person, not like a dog. So it says that at one time, we were not a people. But now, you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, as aliens and strangers, meaning that we're different from everybody else on the earth, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against our soul. We are in a war. Keep yourselves excellent among the Gentiles, and for us that means among the laws, so that in the thing in which they slander you, and they will slander us, but in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. When God comes a knocking, when God comes, and at the resurrection and at the seventh trumpet, and so forth, and when God visits certain people, when God brings judgment to certain people, and so forth, that even though they may slander us and all kinds of false accusations, as long as we continue in righteousness and in truth. The judgment, the verdict is going to come out. The right verdict, the righteous verdict. And in verse 13 it says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors, meaning presidents and governors and mayors and city police, we are to submit ourselves to the law of mankind. Of course, unless, until, that it would mean to uh, disobey God, of course.
course, we obey God rather than man if it means that we would disobey God. But it says in verse 14, or to governors, as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Now, honor all people does not mean that we should respect or honor evil religions, evil doctrines, and wickedness. This should never, ever be used to mean that we should respect other people's religions. The Bible does not teach us to respect religions of the devil, witchcraft, homosexuality, and Satanism, Judaism, and Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism, and the Catholic Church, and the Baptist Church, and the Pentecostal Church, and all the isms of men. The Bible would never tell us to do such a thing. But the context is to honor the president, and the mayor, and the governor, but there's always exceptions to the rule. Amen. And Obama has no honor from me. There's always exceptions to the rule. I will obey the laws set forth, and in that way, I do give Obama my honor by submitting to his laws. But he has no respect for me, from me. I do pray, though, that in the next, uh, in the second resurrection, that he would find Jesus Christ. And I honor him in that way, that as far as I know, he is a human being and needs help, needs salvation and deliverance. To honor him as a human being, knowing that he needs help. Amen. Verse 18 Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So, in other words, if they say, Well, you got to fasten your seatbelt, and you think that's unreasonable, if you think that's not a good law, if you think it's invasion of privacy or over being over-territorian or whatever, we still must obey those rules. We still must obey those laws unless and until it conflicts with obeying God or doing right. Verse 19, for this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, for what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently, endure it, this time favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example 
for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept him in, kept him entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. So in other words, when it comes to religious persecution, when it comes to martyrdom, when it comes to arrest for Jesus, that we are still to submit ourselves to the wicked king and the wicked police at that time. That if they arrest us, if they bring us to the courts and to the judges for righteous living or for the name of Jesus, that we are to not curse them, not fight them, but we are to realize that this is to be expected and that it happened to Jesus and all the prophets and all the apostles before us and that it's part of living for God and we are to endure it and be as Jesus and keep our mouth shut and say yes sir and no sir. Answer the questions be truthful and honest and stand your ground in the truth, not compromising, but neither treating the law people with disrespect. Even if they are doing us wrong, it's all part of the court case, the grand court case that all humanity is in. It's all part of it. There's no sense in causing chaos and resisting what is ordained. Why fight back? God is in control. God is in control. And even though they may kill our body, they cannot take our soul. And this body is nothing. It is here one day and gone the next. In the grand scheme of time, as a second, as a one breath, here today and gone tomorrow, this body, this flesh is nothing. People treat this flesh as if it's God. And they also treat this flesh as if it's Satan. And it's neither God nor Satan, this flesh. This flesh is neither holy nor evil. It is only a temporary tabernacle, a tent, a temporary dwelling for our soul. But we seek a home and a city not built with human hands. Amen. Now it says here in verse 24, And he himself bore our sins in his body at the cross, 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And I think that we may even should do a deep study of that sometime. I'm not sure exactly what it's talking about there. Maybe something different than what we've traditionally been told. So I'm going to write that down and look at that sometime. Verse 25. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherds and guardians of your souls. That word guardian in the margin here says bishop or overseer. I'll have to look at that word too. One good thing is as I do these sermons, there are words that stand out to me that I have to look at so that as I translate the Alpha and Omega Bible, I can pay close attention to these words that stand out to me as, is that really the right word and what does that really mean? So I can take notes as we go through the sermons and and then go back and, and go more slow and careful in the translation on these certain locations. So this helps in the long run with the Alpha and Omega Bible. In chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. Now, it's talking about all this, the young men being submissive to the elders and the women being submissive to the men and so forth, and all people being submissive to the government and the police and the kings and the governors and the laws. And so the context is this that all of us need to learn how to humble ourselves, not to exalt ourselves and our thinking above what the king has said, the governor or the mayor has said. See, democracy is not God's way. It's just not. I don't, I don't, know of any scripture in the Bible where God blesses democracy. I don't know of any scripture in the Bible that says that uh, he wanted the nation of Israel to vote on every law. But historically, the laws were passed in Israel based on what the word of God said until they started following Assyria. But even to this day, a lot of the laws in Israel are passed upon what the Bible says. And they actually get out the scriptures and they base their laws on this and that written in the scriptures to this very day in Israel, sometimes. And then sometimes they're like, no, we want to do it our own way. And it gets worse and worse every year that it's more and more their own way rather than what the scripture says. 
But law and government should be based on the scripture, and that's the way it was at one time. Um, and and will be again uh, when Jesus returns. Amen. So we all are learning. We are all are learning. And the purpose of a woman being submissive to the husband is not has not has not got anything to do with one person being better than another person or more intelligent or stronger or anything like that. It's got to do with each person needing to learn how to humble themselves to someone else and to humble themselves to the law of God. To respect the roles that God has instituted, that God has instituted offices and administrations and roles, that He has instituted presidents and the kings and the governors and the pastors and the deacons and the husbands. And so we're all learning to submit to someone. So in chapter 3 it says, verse 1, in the same way, in the same manner, for the same reason, you wives be submissive to your own husbands. That does not mean that you should allow a man to beat you or hit you. Because there are exceptions to the rules and God doesn't want any of us to allow someone to beat us up unless it is for the purpose of spiritual persecution. When it comes to martyrdom, when it comes to arrest from the government authorities and the religious authorities, yeah, we are to allow them to beat us up, to torture us, and to kill us. But when it comes to people in your own household, no, whether you're a man, woman, or child, God does not want and does not expect you to submit yourself to abuse. But be submissive to your own husbands so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word uh, by the behavior of their wives. So that is saying that if a husband is lost, that the woman can convert him, lead him to Jesus Christ by her uh, humbleness, by her respect that he, that she has for him, by her gentleness, by her love that she shows him, and by her righteous living and example that she brings forth, that he can be won over to Jesus Christ in that. Verse 2, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior, your adornment, your physical clothing, and, and jewelry and stuff must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or put on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart. This is not a express blanket statement against that you can never wear a dress or that you can never wear gold or you can never braid your hair. But rather, it is talking about that your inner person is the most important. That is what it's saying. And to not exalt ourselves by, by 
trying to have a larger, more beautiful ring or a larger, more beautiful earring or a larger, more beautiful, more shiny, more sparkling necklace or a box of the Ten Commandments on your hand. To not try to show yourself off, not to brag about such things and to not be wearing such things to draw the eye of another person, whether it be man or woman. That we are not to, to dress ourselves to draw the eye. That we are not to wear makeup to draw the eye. Or do this or do that to draw the eye of another person. That is the concept. Verse 4, that let it be the hidden person of the heart who people cannot see. The hidden person, which cannot be seen by other people with the physical eye, but only with the soul. That with, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. A woman should have a quiet spirit. That doesn't mean that she can't never talk or express herself or never get angry or anything. It doesn't mean any of those things. But it means a woman should have a gentle spirit about her. A woman should not have a manly spirit. A woman should not have the same soul and the same spirit as a man. Men and women were made different. Amen. Verse 5. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adore themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. They used to adore themselves with gentleness is what it's saying, with holiness, with righteousness, with uh, humbling themselves and having respect and submitting themselves to others. That is what it's saying. Verse 6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him sir, is what it could say here, for you have become her children. Women should be the children, spiritual, symbolic children of Sarah. So women should look at the example of Sarah. Even though she did make that one mistake, we all make mistakes, that she laughed within herself, doubting the promises of God, that she would bear forth a child. Who wouldn't? We can't hold that against her. Who wouldn't? If you're what? up in your 70s, 80s, and 90s, and 100-year-old, and, and God or angel or someone tells you that you're going to have a baby, who wouldn't at least have that first carnal thought? But overall, in her life, she was a good example and a good wife and a good spiritual mother. And she did adore herself with gentleness and did respect her husband and did obey her husband as much as a lot of people today don't like that word obey. But it's true that she did obey her husband. But Western modern thinking 
is like, oh, my God. A woman should never obey her husband. That's modern, Western, carnal thinking. Programming. And it says here, that you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker physically, since she is a woman, show her honor as a fellow power of the grace of life, as a brother. As even a brother can help uh, support a sister and lead a sister. And the Bible even talks about that, leading sisters. Big brothers can be uh, a manly figure, a father figure of the household and so forth. And so husbands are to be like a brother, even though I don't say it like that here. But husbands, there's it says fellow hired. And so that is another way of saying like a brother, that both her and he both have the same possibility of reward and that we're both learning how to, how to submit ourselves to God and we both have weaknesses and strengths and that he should realize these things, that he has weaknesses too and faults too and realize that she's got to get to the same place, that she's trying to get to the same place, amen, that we all have the same finish line of the grace of life so that your prayers would not be hindered. To sum up, all of you, every one of us, be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And that doesn't mean to say God bless you. But what it means is that if our enemy is hungry, feed him. If our our enemy is thirsty, give him a drink. If our enemy is naked and wants clothing, give him clothing. Don't turn your enemy away or anybody away if they are in true need. It does not mean to say God bless you when somebody pisses you off. It's just simply not what it means. And neither does it mean that you have no right to self-defense ever in your life. doesn't mean that either. And it says, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and to seek good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, he must turn away from evil and do good. Yep, there is something we must do. We must do good. If you are baptized, keep the seventh day, the feast days, go to church, all that, and don't murder and don't steal and don't commit adultery, 
but you don't do no good in your life. You don't do no good in your life. You don't, you've never helped the poor. Then you're still not going to make it in. We are called to do good, to be workers. We are called unto good works, the scripture says. It says he must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are for the righteous, for his ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Amen. Make a note there. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prevail us for what is good? That's not a promise that we will never be hated, never be persecuted, or never be martyred. But it does mean that in general, in life, that if you pursue peace and treat people right and treat people with respect and help the poor, then in general, then people are not going to hurt you in general, but rather they would turn away. In, in other words, I will give you an example. There have been people who have come in here that I knew were lost and wicked, and they claim to be saved, and they claim, I know Jesus, and I'm going to heaven, and so forth and so forth. But instead of speaking directly to them, No, you're not saved. No, you're not going to heaven. And you are wicked and you are satanic. Instead of doing that, I talk to them in a way, in a manner, to where they're not going to cuss me out. They're not going to punch me in the face. (laughs) And they're not going to leave in anger. But they're going to leave in a peaceful manner, in a way that maybe possibly they might come back. Now, I do hold my ground and and hold on to the Word of God and what it says and what the truth is. I do not compromise. And it gets tense at times. But I still handle the matter to where I try to keep it peaceful as much as possible as much as it depends upon me. And in that way, they still look favorably upon me more than other pastors in the region because they speak against other pastors who have just not said things right to them and just used words that really made them feel like that they're not welcome to come back to the church. But I try to make people feel like that even though we may have a disagreement, and even though I do believe that they are in sin, that they're still welcome to come back here if they want to, to hear the truth. And I have told homosexuals that 
And I've told other people that. And they don't return yet because I did stand my ground on what sin is. But at least they left in peace. And they left knowing that I said that they can come back to learn and grow and seek the truth. And they left with the prophecies so that when the prophecies are fulfilled, they will be back. They will be back. This place is going to be so packed. So packed. It's going to be so packed. There will be people coming and going all day long, every day. That time is going to come. But my time with each and every one of those people are going to be extremely limited. Extremely limited. And they're going to have to seek God. And the only thing I'm going to be able to do for them is say, I've got 10 minutes with you. Here's a flyer. And this is what the next thing is going to happen in the news. And this is what you need to do. And you need to seek God, read the Bible, pray fast, believe the Bible, keep the seventh day, and a simple list of things that is a personal relationship. And that's about all I'm going to be able to tell these people. And that's about all that I'm going to have time to spend with each one. Except for some of them that I would spend more time with because that God will show me that they're meant to stay. But it says that we are, in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? People can tell the difference whether you are sincere or not. People can tell the difference about whether you love them or you don't love them, whether you care for them or you don't care for them. People can tell the difference. In verse 14, that even if you should suffer, that even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, meaning to remember. That's what that, what that really means is to remember that God is in control. Sanctify Christ as Lord. Know that he is in control. Always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. We should be able to answer the question, why did you believe what you do? We need to be able to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who avow your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better, if God should will it so, 
that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. We're all going to suffer, every one of us. But it's better if we suffer for what is right rather than for what is wrong. Amen. Let's look at um, Revelation 16. Revelation chapter 16 is dealing with the wrath of God that's going to come down on the wicked in those last 30 days or 45 days. After the saints of God are called up, Revelation 16, when that seventh trumpet blows, the only people that's going to be called up are only the truly saved people who keep the seventh day and the feast days and have been given their tithes and have been helping the poor and the needy and the hungry and who are mature enough in their mind and in their heart and their soul. People have to be mature enough in Christ and without sin. They have to be no longer sinning in their life in order to be caught up in the first resurrection. Otherwise, you automatically go to the second resurrection. you still got 100 years to get all that sin out of your life. For God is not willing for any man to perish, but for all to have everlasting life. So he's going to do everything possible to give you the time you need to get all the sin out of your life. His plan of salvation is so much better, more full and complete than what man has told us about. Amen. It is not impossible to get all sin out of our lives. Not impossible. Don't live, don't let traditional Assyrian church doctrine continue to deceive you to think you cannot become sinless. Yes, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but that's in our past. We have to move, like it says, the heat that sins is of the devil, and those that are born of God cannot sin because the Spirit of God dwells in him. We have come to that place in Christ before we can be turned to the eternal Spirit. But now, for the wicked that are left behind at the seventh trumpet, and this is not talking about uh, saints that are just not ready, because there will be some saints who have just not got all the sin out yet that will still be on earth that's not called up yet. And even though they're going to still be on earth during the wrath, they're not going to suffer the things we're about to read here. They may see it, but they're not going to have to suffer it. God will supernaturally preserve them and protect them here on this earth from this wrath. But this wrath is going to be poured out specifically upon the wicked people who are lost and do not want to serve God. They hate God, and they hate righteousness, and they exalt themselves over God. And it says here in chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple, talking about the temple of God in heaven, saying to the seven angels, 
go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls or the seven vials of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bow on the earth, and it came a loathsome and malignant sore on the people who had the mark of the beast, which is Islam, and who worshipped his image, which could be a hologram or the black stone of Mecca. Uh, or it could be talking about uh, any type of picture of a song. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bow, or vial, into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. And the third angel poured out his bow into the rivers and the streams of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judged these things, and they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, uh, for they did, for the wicked had poured out the saints, blood of the saints and prophets, for you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. Wow. This angel says to God, what you're doing to these wicked people is righteous and just, and you have judged righteously. These people deserve it. God is fair. Verse 7, I heard the altar say, or the people, the angel of the altar say, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, True and righteous are your judgments. So everybody agrees. It's like one person gives the motion and the next gives the second. It's going to be seconded. They all agree. It's a unanimous decision that the judgment is true and righteous and just and fair. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun and it was given to it, the sun, to scorch men, talking about the wicked men with fire upon the earth. The man was scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over the plagues and they did not repent as to give him glory. Now this shows that they could repent. These are people with the mark of the beast. It's not impossible to repent of any sin. It's not impossible to repent of the mark of the beast. It is Islam, and people can be delivered and saved and delivered from Islam. It's not impossible. The fact, the fact that it says they did not repent shows that they could have repented. Why is God whooping them? God is whooping them because he wants them to repent. He's not whooping them because he hates them. He's whooping them because he loves them and wants them to change and repent and love righteousness and not evil. But they refuse. Even at this moment of this whooping, they still refuse to say, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. They refuse to say that. They still exalt themselves as being better and more fair more just and more righteous than God. They still think they're right and God is wrong. 
They still are holding on to the knowledge of tree, tree of good and evil. They still think that Islam is good. That even after all the murders and all the all everything that they're going to witness for the last three and a half years before this, everything they're going to have to go through, everything they're going to see in that three and a half, half years of tribulation, they still are that stubborn, that rebellious, and that wicked. Yeah, they deserve it. Amen. Amen. And it says here in verse 10, Then the fifth angel poured out his bow on the throne of the beast and his kingdom and became darkened, and they grawled their tongues because of pain, and they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. It says that twice, that they did not repent. And it says it twice for a reason, to get you to pay attention to those words. It would not say that they did not repent if it was impossible for them to repent. So even at that moment, even at that late, late moment, it's still possible for people to get saved. It's possible for people to repent and get saved, but they refuse to. Repentant is the first step of being saved. The Bible says repent and be baptized. If they would make that first step, the next step would be baptism. But they won't even take that first step. Amen. So we see how wicked the people are. They are that wicked. That's how wicked the Muslims are. We've got to realize how extremely wicked people are. That doesn't mean that we don't love them. doesn't mean we don't pray for their salvation. doesn't mean that we don't have compassion for them. We should feel sorry for them. We should have compassion and feel and realize and comprehend how sad it is that they are that wicked. It does not mean that we should bury our heads in the sand and pretend that they're not wicked. We must face reality. We need to face reality, just like these angels were facing reality, that the people deserved it. We have to face reality of how wicked the world is. Once we do face reality, then we can embrace and accept what time it is, how close the tribulation is. We don't want to be living in a fairy tale. We need to know what time it is, how close it is, by realizing how extremely wicked the people are. The people already have this heart and this hatred. God has been showing me that he keeps putting me in the, in the path of people, showing me their hateful heart. And so I have to share this with you, what I'm seeing, what God is showing me. Let's look at one more place, 2 Thessalonians. We go back to this every week, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2.
2 Thessalonians chapter 2, talking about the strong delusion, talking about when the fallen angel of Sod appears in the temple of God in heaven, declaring himself as God. The world will look up in the sky one day, and a lot, a lot, a lot, I'm talking about millions, millions, perhaps billions of people around the world will worship him, Assad, the fallen angel, that day. And why would God allow that to happen? Why will God allow the majority of people on this earth to worship a demon and allow him to sit in that seat of God in heaven? Why will, why will God tell Michael, the archangel, to step aside, be taken out of the way, and allow that wickedness to occur? It says here in verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 6, And you know what restrains him. That's talking about Michael, the archangel, restraining Assad from sitting in the seat. You know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness, sin, is already at work. Only he who now restrains Michael the archangel will do so until he's taken out of the way. Then that lawless one, Assad, will be revealed, seen, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. Amen. Praise God. And bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one, Assad, whose coming is in accord, in agreement with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish. Because they did not love the truth so as to be saved. This is why God, Jesus, is going to allow this to happen and ordain it to happen. Because the people don't love the truth. They love darkness. They love wickedness. So he's going to turn them over to what they love. If you love the wickedness so much, here it is. Eat it. Eat the take and drink of the cup of wrath. It says here in verse 11, for this reason, this is why, for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence. King James says, a strong delusion so that they will believe what is false, which is a false coming of Jesus, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth. They heard the truth, but they did not believe it but they took pleasure in wickedness. They love wickedness and they hate God. So he's going to turn them over to the Lord of wickedness, to the King of wickedness. Let them enjoy that feast 
let him enjoy that that drunkenness of the blood of the saints because he's going to allow them to hang themselves. Amen. He's going to allow the wicked to hang themselves. If they want to do what they will, if they want to follow the number one commandment of the satanic Bible, do what thou will, okay, do it. They will prove themselves guilty. The Bible says that they condemn themselves. They are condemned already. The Bible says they condemn themselves. We don't have to curse them. We don't have to condemn them. They curse themselves and they condemn themselves and they bring it upon themselves. And almost every bit of trouble that exists in this world, people bring upon themselves. It's not God doing it. It's not even Satan doing it. People need to stop giving Satan the credit. It's not God. It's not Satan. It's you. We bring upon ourselves our own damnation. Amen. People must take the responsibility for their actions. Well, this is what God has given me today, and I thank you for listening. Hopefully this helps more and more people to understand where we are today, what the world is like, that our eyes be more open to the truth about things, truth about people, society, what time we're living in. Hopefully this helps us understand better and also helps us to be stronger, stronger in the Lord. We can't pretend about things. We can't live in a fairy tale. We have to live in reality with real and true and deep understanding. Then we'll be able to get through it better. Amen. Okay, so um, we'll be back next week. And for anybody that may listen to this broadcast, For the first time, we are here every Saturday at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. You can also listen 24-7 in the archives. You can go back to previous broadcasts. You can download the broadcasts onto your phones and computers and laptops. You can burn them onto CDs and so forth. You can also mail links to people where they can open up the link to listen to the broadcast. And you can find out more about this ministry on the ministry website, I saw the light ministries.com. We praise God because God has brought forth the baptisms of two people recently, uh, a woman in Canada and a woman in Australia, that God has brought back, uh, brought both of these baptisms uh, to be uh, back-to-back recently, both of them in hot tubs, in houses that they were house-sitting and babysitting for. And uh, the the one uh, 
couple days ago to baptism, we did not even know that that baptism was going to occur when it did. We didn't even know that she was going to get the altar to babysit. And we've been praying that God would make a way for the baptism to come forth because it's winter time in Australia. And so, uh, but then God brought it forth. And she was able to uh, babysit with some uh, teenagers or kids. I'm not sure how old they are. And and they had a hot tub, and she asked, she did ask people at the house if she could uh, baptize there, and they said yes. And so it came forth, and our prayers were answered. And uh, lo and behold, the woman in Canada had been baptized in a hot tub of a house that she was house-sitting for just a few days or a week before that. So two in a row were baptized in the hot tubs of not even their own homes, not even their own houses. So God brings about a way and a means for those that are trying to serve him. Amen. We give honor and praise for what Jesus has done, for what he is doing, for what he is going to do. All of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.